millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi everyone, and welcome to the Mummy Movie Podcast, where we are looking at the first half of the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles film, My First Adventure. This is a series which I used to really enjoy when I was younger, and I still hold a lot of kind of like nostalgia for. In terms of the premise, it's pretty self-explanatory. It's about a young Indiana Jones, the kind of adventures he goes on, and the events that shape him into the man he becomes in the Harrison Ford films. This series is also supposed to have like a, an educational element to it as well, so I feel that the historical accuracy section here is going to be really interesting. In terms of the format, I have had to split this film into two episodes. However, as the film is basically made up of two completely separate adventures, sort of stitched together, we should be able to use the usual format here. We shall start by having a little look at the background information for the first half, then a look at the historical accuracy, and finally I shall review the first half of this film and just kind of rate it out of 10. Then on Thursday I shall do the same for the second half, though it probably is worth saying the second half is set in Morocco, not Egypt, so it's going to be a little bit shorter as, <laughs> shockingly, I don't know as much about Morocco as I do Egypt. Right. Let us get started. You were born July 1st, 1899, to a very intelligent, stubborn father and a mother who you idolised. At a young age, you were a pretty normal child who loved causing mischief and had a thirst for adventure. Then one day, in 1908, your father reveals that he is taking you and your mother on the journey of a lifetime. You will be travelling around the globe with him, visiting exotic locations, as he goes on conferences, talks to influential people, and gives speeches on his new, well-regarded book. You can hardly contain your excitement, and in your head one thought prevails. I can't believe it, you think. I'm about to go on my first adventure.
I should probably just say to start with that we will be following the 1999 re-release version of these films. Basically, as is similar with many George Lucas creations, quite a lot has been changed here since its first release. After all, as is well known, George Lucas cannot help himself when it comes to tampering with his own creations. The original pilot for the Young Indiana Jones was titled Young Indiana Jones and the Curse of the Jackal. Basically, it started in New York in 1992, where we see two children who have snuck away from a school trip in a museum. Presumably, this is probably supposed to be the Metropolitan Museum. They then bump into an older, eye-patched-wearing version of Indiana Jones, who is played by George Hall. They tell him that they think history is really boring, so he sits them down and tries to change their minds by telling them about two of his former adventures. The first story is set in 1908, when he was just nine years old. In this one, he travels to Egypt with his family, and there ends up meeting the likes of T.E. Lawrence and Howard Carter. The story ends with T.E. Lawrence chasing after a thief who has stolen an artefact known as the Jackal with the Eyes of Fire. Then we go back to the older Indiana Jones sitting with the children. He leads them through to another exhibit and tells them about the second story. In this one, he is 16 years old and goes to Mexico. After this story ends, the boys are eager to know what happened to the Jackal with the Eyes of Fire and he points to a display case behind them, where the jackal now sits. This was the format for the original pilot, which was released in 1992 on March 4th, so just 25 days before I was born. However, when it was re-released in 1999, it was radically changed and given the title My First Adventure. For a start, George Hall's older Indiana Jones has been completely scrapped and even the voiceover he did at the beginning of the episode has been re-recorded by Corey Carrier, who plays the nine-year-old Indiana Jones. The change here was largely made as George Lucas did not feel that George Hall's version of The Older Indy fit well with the kind of new film format. The newer version, so the 1999 version, also took the first part of the pilot set in Egypt, but then re-recorded the ending so that we had T.E. Lawrence catching the thief though he was still not able to uncover the jackal with the eyes of fire. The new scene was actually shot during the production of The Phantom Menace and was done as it was believed to bring the adventure to a kind of fuller conclusion. Then we immediately see Indiana Jones, still nine years old, as they travel to Morocco. Here, the story is much darker, to be honest with you, as it is Indiana Jones's first experience with slavery. I shall talk more about that story on Thursday. Just to finish things off for this background information section, it's probably worth just saying that the first half of this film was shot mostly in Egypt and Spain during 1991. Okay, we have now arrived at the historical accuracy section. So here I'm just going to go over the film, well, well, the first half, as I said in the introduction, and just sort of say what it gets right and what it gets wrong in terms of historical accuracy. So, as I've already stated a couple of times, this film is set in 1908, and early on, Indiana Jones claims that it took them 
about nine days to get from England to Egypt, more specifically Alexandria in Egypt. This is indeed a feasible duration for the trip, though admittedly it is on the faster end. Typically, such a trip in 1908 would have taken between sort of 10 to 14 days, though timings would have varied wildly depending on multiple factors, such as, you know, obviously like weather and the, the route taken, that kind of thing. During the trip, uh, Indiana Jones's very strict teacher, Miss Seymour, makes him study tirelessly, and then during a scene where they're having dinner with the captain, he reveals that he's been learning about mummification. He then explains it in graphic detail, leading to everyone at the table slowly losing their appetite. <laughs> he claims at first they broke the bone in the nose, and then teased out the brain through the nostril using a metal hook. They then used a stone knife to make an incision in the left side of the body, and pulled out the organs from here. The liver, lungs, stomach and intestines were then all put in four separate canopic jars. He then claims that they would tie on the, the toenails and the fingernails with string so that they would not fall off. Then they would place cloth in both the eyes and the nose, though sometimes, rather than cloth under the eyelids, they would place small onions instead. After this, the body was wrapped. A fair amount of this is actually pretty accurate, though he is missing out some, some important steps and there are a few parts that he's kind of misconstrued as well. First things first, they did indeed break the bone in the nose and extract the brain from it. Part of this would have been done through teasing, though they would also stir the brain and add other liquids through the nostril so that they would kind of like pour it out instead. You know, this is how they get a large amount of the brain out. They did also cut the left side of the abdomen with a stone knife, usually it was made of flint. And also, the canopic jars did indeed contain the liver, stomach, lungs and intestine. In terms of the fingernails and toenails being held on by string, this was sometimes done, though more commonly they would have had golden sheaths placed over the top of them, and they would have also been individually wrapped. These golden sheaths were actually really important as they were believed to give the dead spirit the power of movement so they could visit the various temples and festivals around Egypt, things like that. They also would place cloth in the nose and under the eyelids, and it is true that occasionally they would use onions to replace the eyes instead. However, in this scene, Indiana Jones misses out the natron entirely. Once all of the organs had been removed, the deceased would be placed in a bath of natron for 40 days in order to kind of dry them out. And it would also be stuffed so that it would maintain its kind of lifelike appearance. Once that was all done, the limbs would be anointed with oils in order to sort of keep them quite subtle and to stop them from snapping. It was only after all of this that the mummy would be wrapped. So overall, this scene does get a lot right, but it is highly simplified, gets one or two points incorrect, and misses out a fair amount. Later in the episode, Indiana Jones and Miss Seymour visit the pyramids. Whilst there, Miss Seymour tells Indy that, well, the Great Sphinx is 2,500 years old. 
This is pretty accurate. Originally, it was built for the pharaoh Khafre, who has the second largest pyramid at Giza. They then climbed this pyramid, which in fairness they would have been allowed to do in 1908. As they do, Miss Seymour points over to the Great Pyramid and gets Indiana Jones to tell her all about it. He claims that it is 4,000 years old, one of the largest buildings in existence, built by the King Cheops, and one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. He is technically correct on all accounts here. The pyramid was roughly built around about 2570 BC, you know, give or take. So, well over 4,000 years ago. Much later, the Greeks did indeed refer to the owner of the Great Pyramid as Cheops, though in Egypt he was known as Khufu. During 1908, it was indeed one of the tallest buildings in the world, and in fact, it remained the tallest building in the world until the construction of the Eiffel Tower in 1887, so it was the tallest building in the world for thousands of years. Finally, not only is it one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, it is also the last one to remain standing. As they reach the top of the pyramid, their guide, who is a bit dissatisfied with the tip that Miss Seymour gave him, decides to leave and take the camels with him. Therefore, both Indy and Miss Seymour are stranded in the desert without transportation. It is just as they are beginning to panic that a man on a bicycle begins to approach them. And it turns out that Miss Seymour knows this person. It is none other than T.E. Lawrence, better known as Lawrence of Arabia. He reveals that he is currently a student at Oxford University in Jesus College. He then claims that he has been in Syria looking at crusader castles and decided to travel into Egypt just to kind of, you know, see the sights. This is very interesting, if slightly incorrect. First things first, he was indeed a student at Jesus College, Oxford between 1907 and 1910 so that is accurate. However, in 1908, he was actually cycling around France. In fact, he cycled 3,500 kilometres around the country as he researched the castles there. It was not until 1909, so a year after the setting of this film, that he went to Syria. Here, he undertook a 1,600 kilometre walking tour while studying crusader castles for his dissertation. So, the title of this dissertation was The Influence on the Crusades on European Military Architecture to the End of the 12th Century. And for this thesis, he got a first-class honours. I think it's fair to say, given how much work he put into it, given that he did a 1,600km walking tour, that he kind of deserved that. But in terms of Egypt, he didn't visit there until 1912, when he briefly worked with a very well-known Egyptologist and archaeologist, Flinders Petrie. So, they have gotten the events of his life a little bit muddled up here, though in fairness, I do feel they've got the spirit of his character quite, quite good. Like, this is how I could imagine uh, T. Lawrence could have been. Further, it is partly through T.E. Lawrence that Indiana Jones realises that he wants to be an archaeologist. At first, he claims that he just wants fortune and glory, but then T.E. Lawrence 
quickly tells him that this is not what the archaeologist should be after. For him, history and archaeology is not about stealing from the past. It is about opening it up so that people can learn lessons and that civilizations and people can be remembered. If I'm honest, I think this is quite a beautiful way of viewing things. And he is right. Archaeology is a poor profession and one you do for passion, not riches. T.E. Lawrence then invites Indiana Jones to accompany him to Luxor, where Howard Carter is working on a dig. In fairness to the film, Howard Carter was working in Luxor during 1908. Now, this is set some 14 years before he discovered Tutankhamun in the Valley of the Kings, but during this time he was excavating at Deir al-Bakri and also in the, the Asasif. Both of these locations are in Luxor and relatively close to each other, like you can walk between them quite easily. In the film, during the excavation, they find the tomb of a chief architect who lived during the reign of Tutankhamun. This would not be the strangest location to find the, the tomb of a chief architect, though most people in this position would have been working on their own tombs, and it would have likely been located around the village of Dao Medina. So that was basically where most of the workmen who worked on the Valley of the Kings lived. In terms of the tomb owner's name here, he's called Car. The Car, as I have explained in previous episodes, was part of the Egyptian soul. In general, it was believed that after death, this part of the soul lived in the tomb with the body of the deceased, but could also move into like statues of the deceased and likenesses, and this way like offerings and things like that could be given to them. In fairness, Car was also a name in ancient Egypt, and from about a two-minute search, I found, I think it was 28 examples of this name. So, that's absolutely fair. However, sadly, the actual excavation here leaves a lot to be desired. For a start, they, they used dynamite, and okay, fair enough, this is set in 1908, and during the early 20th century, it was still occasionally used, but it was frowned upon, after all, by this point we did realise that dynamite could significantly damage, if not completely destroy, the more delicate items. Shocking that it took us that long to figure that out. More importantly, by this point we were moving away from the kind of like treasure hunter idea of archaeology, and more to the idea of preserving the past. So, you know, massive explosion from dynamite, maybe not the best idea. I will also say that the progress in which they uncover this tomb is astonishing. By the way they are talking, they had only just discovered the tomb by the time Indiana Jones and T.E. Lawrence had arrived, and yet the very next day they are entering it. I remember one excavation I went on, ironically roughly in about the same area as this. Um, a new tomb was discovered, I think it was either the first or second day I was there. We didn't enter it for another three weeks because, you know, these things take time, basically. There's so much to take into account. First of all, like, obviously, you've got to clear the sand, but as you're doing that, you're taking measurements, you're taking photos, you're documenting everything. You know, these things take a long time. However, in fairness, there are some nice details here. For a start, the tomb itself, ironically, I suppose, does seem to be inspired by the tomb of Tutankhamun. Very appropriate, as we're talking about Howard Carter here. For a start, the entrance is blocked off by a plaster wall, much how it was in the Tomb of Tutankhamun. 
Further, the door is sealed with a rope, again much in the way Tutankhamun's tomb was. As they move through the tomb, Howard Carter then claims that traps are rampant in tombs, but says that they should be okay. He then arrives at a door lintel where a curse is placed. It reads thus, He who enters my tomb shall be burned with fire. First things first, traps are not rampant in ancient Egyptian tombs. That's a myth. This is not to say there weren't defences, of course. Uh, for a start, you had Megi that generally guarded the area from tomb robbers. Uh, there were also, much like in this tomb, we have uh, the plaster walls. And these were often actually disguised to make them look like dead ends. Uh, you know, like the tomb was coming to a dead end, I mean. In the actual Valley of the Kings, there were also well chambers, which are basically, as they sound, very deep holes that lead down to water. No one really knows what the purpose of these were, but it is likely that they were either there as a way of sort of like diverting water that could potentially damage the tomb, or they may have also been a way of stopping tomb robbers. After all, not only were they one of the rooms that was blocked off by a plaster wall, so one of the ones I talked about earlier that was kind of used to make it look like the tomb was coming to a dead end, but they were also essentially a large hole that was not easily crossed. And you, you had to cross them to get to the burial chamber. There was no other way around that. So, although there were defences in these tombs, I feel that saying there are traps is a bit of a stretch. As for curses, they do actually occur, but they are incredibly rare and tend to appear more in sort of Old Kingdom tombs rather than the Newer Kingdom ones. So we're talking about a time period that's that ended about a thousand years before the reign of Tutankhamun. Interestingly, they almost take a legal document approach in their wording, often along the lines of, if you do something bad, then something bad will happen to you. So, in a legal sense, maybe it will be something like, if you refuse to answer, you will receive a hundred lashes. Where for a curse it would be, if you steal from my tomb, then you will die of a disease that no doctor can cure. But, as already said, such curses are incredibly uncommon, especially from the New Kingdom. In the film, when they arrive at the burial chamber, T.E. Lawrence and Howard Carter begin to move things around without taking any pictures, notes or measurements. First, they instantly remove the sarcophagus lid and then they open a secret door. Even in 1908, all of this would have had some level of documentation. After all, once something has been taken out of its original context, it can't really be put back, at least not with any ease and not to any authentic level. When it comes to the hidden door, Howard Carter believes that it must be there because they have not discovered any treasure in the tomb. In reality, most of the tombs in the area were robbed long ago, like we're talking in antiquity, so this would not really be that surprising. Howard Carter claims that the tomb was still sealed, and that's why he believes there must still be treasure there. But once again, plenty of these tombs were resealed later after thieves had caused damage and robbed them. So this theory doesn't really hold up. When they finally find the secret entrance, they open the door and immediately poison gas fills the room, forcing them to flee the tomb. This is purely fictional. 
it is just one of those traps Howard Carter mentioned earlier that weren't really a thing. Finally for this part, they find a headpiece which originally had an artifact on it called the Jackal with the Eyes of Fire. This artifact has been purely made up for the film, it's fictional. So overall, the historical accuracy here is a bit hit and miss, but it is also better than most of the films I review, I do feel that is fair to say. For instance, they do get part of the mummification process correct, and the information the film gives on the Great Sphinx and the Great Pyramid is also pretty good. Further, although it messes up the timeline of T.E. Lawrence a bit, he is at least presented in a way that I could plausibly see him ha- you know, having been in life. However, on the downside, the film does also present some pretty questionable archaeology, which even in 1908 would have been a bit out of date. You know, such as the use of dynamite and a lack of documentation. Basically, it does feel as if the film gets less accurate as it goes along, likely as the facts start to become a bit inconvenient to the actual plot. Okay, so we've now arrived at the review section of the episode. So here I'm simply going to go over the first half of the film, saying what I liked and disliked, and then just rate it out of 10. The beginning of this film, where we see a very young Indiana Jones and all the adventures and sort of like mischief he gets up to, was actually really fun. During this scene, we also see the friendship and love that Indiana Jones had for his dog, who in The Last Crusade we find out he actually names himself after. This whole scene was incredibly sweet and actually quite wholesome as well. Though, I will admit, I felt genuinely sad when he had to leave the dog behind to go on his, like, world tour. In general, right from the very first scene, and throughout the adventure for that matter, there is also an undeniable George Lucas charm here. This is actually really interesting, as George Lucas was not the only writer on the show, and generally, other writers took the lead on the actual script for each episode. I will also say that some of the humour here also does land. For instance, the scene I spoke about where they're having dinner with the captain on the ship. In this scene, Indiana Jones goes into great detail about how uh, the ancient Egyptians mummified their dead. And as he continues to talk, people keep excusing themselves from the table, seemingly completely sick. This was a little silly and it did make me chuckle. There's nothing wrong with something being a bit silly. Further... I did very much enjoy the soundtrack. Although there is some stock music used here, in general, I think it keeps that adventurous Indiana Jones feel while also keeping its own identity. In fact, if someone were to play me the opening theme for the young Indiana Jones, not only would I instantly know where it's from, but when I went home, there's a good chance I'd probably watch one of the episodes as well. Further, I like the chemistry between the characters. The standout here are the interactions between Indiana Jones, Miss Seymour and T.E. Lawrence. So whilst Miss Seymour is a very intelligent, prim and proper woman who holds on fiercely to her Christian values and will not budge from them at all, T.E. Lawrence on the other hand has more respect for all religions and has gone out of his way to learn about them. It is clear that he sees beauty in the variety in the world and has a surprisingly modern way of looking at things. And then we have nine-year-old Indiana Jones, who is somewhere in the middle of them both and is kind of a bit of a sponge, sort of just taking in everything that they're saying. 
you know, it is clear that he's still learning because, well, he's nine years old. So from his interactions with Miss Seymour, uh, she's basically a bit stricter in his teacher, and he does genuinely learn from her, even though he doesn't like it. Though we also see that he doesn't really learn to love learning from her, and instead learns that you can have passion from a subject from T.E. Lawrence instead. Basically, Miss Seymour may be his teacher, but T.E. Lawrence here is his inspiration. All three of them are great characters in their own right, and they really help to make the show better. Further, it is clear that this film is supposed to show Indiana Jones's motivations to want to become an archaeologist. Even though this takes place many years before the Harrison Ford films, it fits in nicely with his mentality in the Raiders of the Lost Ark. There are one or two points, however, that don't really work so well. For a start, although I do like Corey Carrier as a, the young version of Indiana Jones, the, the nine-year-old Indiana Jones, if you will, I really wish they had not had him voice over the early scenes and had, had, had instead kept the George Hall voice over instead. This does not come from a place of nostalgia for me, as I first watched these after 1999, and so did not originally see the version with George Hall. However, I do feel it was a little unfair on the man to cut him out completely, and even get rid of the voiceover, which didn't really need to be done. It's fine to have an old Indiana Jones doing that part of the film. You know, it wouldn't have harmed it at all. I also did feel that the ending became sillier as it went along, and it also did become a little bit messy. This may have been in part because of all of the reshooting that was done, though I also feel that it's because when they arrive at the excavation of Howard Carter, you don't really get to know any of the characters. Then, all of a sudden, you are in the middle of a murder mystery as a man gets killed in the tomb. This could have been a really good story, in fairness, but when you don't know the characters, it's a little hard to assess everyone's motivations, and so I felt this part of the story fell a little bit flat. I shall go over the reception of this film a little more in the next episode. But despite being a bit of a flat ending to this first part, I will admit I enjoyed it immensely. Now, I will be the first to admit that I am highly biased when it comes to this film, as I have a lot of nostalgia for the young Indiana Jones. But I'm going to try and put that aside so that I can give this first half a decent rating, because after all, this first half is a complete adventure in its own right. For my rating, I am giving it an 8 out of 10. There are some issues here. I feel that's undeniable. But I was also entertained throughout, and... If I'm honest, I do feel that the film's, like, charm does shine through. Thank you very much for listening. If you haven't already, please do like and subscribe. And join me next Thursday, where we shall be looking at the second half of this film. I hope you all have an excellent next few days, and see you then. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.